Uh, my prayer is that uh, the Lord has kept you this week and, and that you have seen his presence and felt um, just the hand of God um, in your life. So before we get started today, I just want to give you a few updates. So um, Pastor Mike, as you know, the pastor of um, Harvest, um, recently went into the hospital. So last week he went to the hospital and he thought he would get he would be getting right back out. And it turns up he needed to have an angiogram and he had to have almost immediate uh, triple bypass surgery. So he will be out for um, three months. And um, Pastor Mike has had, you know, in my conversations, I know he's had two heart attacks in the past and has had five stents placed in his heart. So um, before we do anything, before we get started, and just to let you know, the day that he actually had the triple bypass was the day he was supposed to be preaching his mother-in-law's eulogy. So um, that family has been going through a lot, and um, they have been so gracious and kind to us, not just, you know, in allowing us to use the church, but even uh, Miss Jones, his wife Kim, has been so kind to me during uh, our work together at the school. So before we get started, I just want to say a prayer for them and their family. So bow with me, if you will. Lord, we just thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your grace, and we thank you that you have extended your love so deeply to us and that you have given us um, the grace and the mercy that we know that we don't deserve, God. But in this moment, we just ask for more of that grace and mercy, God. We are coming to you, petitioning you, God, on behalf of the Jones family, God. Um, Pastor Mike is one of the good ones. He is one of the good ones, Lord, and I believe that if anybody has fulfilled the call of a pastor, it's him. So, God, as he um, lay healing, we just pray that you will heal him. God, we pray that you will renew his strength, that you will um, restore to him even the zeal that he has to shepherd your people, God. We pray for the Jones family as a whole, God, as it seems like it's been one thing after the next. We even pray for their son-in-law, Patrick, who's had to have um, a complete um, repair of his ACL and just ongoing nerve issues. So, God, we just pray for your peace, for your love, for your grace, for the believers like ourselves to surround them, God, in this time where it feels like they are enduring so much, God, that this will be the time where they look to you, they look to God, they look to our Savior, and that they'll feel the presence of God, they'll feel the love, and that you'll just outpour on them, God. And we just, again, we just pray for healing, God. We pray for the physical healing, but God, in this time, as it can wear on us mentally and emotionally and spiritually, God, we just pray for peace. Remind them that you are the God who gives us peace, and it is a peace that surpasses understanding. So, God, we just pray for this church. We pray for harvest in this time where Pastor Mike is away. But we also pray that this is a time of rest for him, God, that he sees that um, even he needs to rest and needs to be refilled and refueled for, you, for your purposes and for your glory. We just ask for you this. We thank you for that family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So please keep them in your prayers as they are going through during this time. Sometimes it seems like when it rains, it pours. But we know the Bible says that it rains on the just as well as the unjust. And that for us, we can endure and go through with a hope, and I just pray that this is a good time of sanctification for them. So I'm excited to be preaching the Word of God today. Um, as you see, it is Christianity versus the culture. Christianity versus the culture. 
And look, this has been a pretty prominent theme in all of our talks in the book of Acts. We've seen this this kind of battle between the faithful believers and the culture around them. And I think the more we read, honestly, the more relevant everything we read from back then is to us today. In fact, we're going to look um, in depth at some of the stark similarities between Jerusalem, where they're going to be and our own reality. And I think if there is any place where we've been reading and everything that we've seen and we can say this is when it all comes to a head. This is the full culmination of everything we've been reading. I think this is it. Full force. We're going to see that everything that has been happening to the Christian here is all going to be poured out on Paul. And while his suffering has been the continual theme in the book of Acts, there is so much else that is looking us in the face of what happens in the context of his suffering here. And so I hope that we will see that the way that things are played out back then are no different than the way that we are seeing things play out in our own societies. And honestly, that we've seen pretty consistently for the past two years. And so we know that last week, if you remember, Paul was going back to Jerusalem and the disciples who had been with him pleaded with him, Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem. If you go back, you're probably going to die. And you remember the week before that, he basically preached his own eulogy, knowing that he would probably never see them again. And so this is a time when he's actually returned back to Jerusalem. And if you remember from last week, even a prophet, Agabus, comes down and says, listen, I'm going to tie myself up so that you can realize this is the way that you are actually going to be tied up and bound and thrown into prison. That's literally what happens. And so as he comes back down to Jerusalem, not only does he know all of that, but he also knows that the context of Jerusalem as a whole was that Jerusalem was a hotbed at this time of unrest. There were racial tensions, which we are going to see. And there was also social calamity. And in a lot of real ways, Jerusalem mirrored our own society. And what is noticeable in what we see is that when many of the other Christians would not only try to keep Paul from going, but not even go themselves. We see that Paul is the one who was compelled to fight against the culture. Now, as long as we live, we will have to live our lives counter to the culture. We will have to live our lives counter to what the world is doing. And I know that we may be tired of hearing this. I know that you're tired of hearing about the culture and living counter to the culture. But the truth is this, is that the more and more it becomes relevant for us, the more we live, the more the culture becomes aggressively opposed to God. We will only experience that more and more as we live. And so what I hope we see today as we jump back into Acts 21 and we close out Acts 21 this week, what we're going to see is that the things that happened with Paul and the culture back then are no different than what happens with us in the culture today. And we need to see how he stands up against it. But we're also going to look at his life and see why his life was the biggest defense he had against what the culture was saying. So go with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 21. We're going to start at verse number 27. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. 
This is the man who is teaching everyone, everyone against everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that God had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried, or carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the word, God. We thank you how the word has so richly blessed us and will bless us, God. We pray that as we look here, that you will allow us to see just the way the world attacks us, just the way the world creates accusations, just the way the world would manipulate and use wicked tactics in order to undermine the gospel. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we look today that you will give us the encouragement more than anything else, that we need not fight with any tangible armor or any physical way, but that the best way that we can defend the truth of the gospel is that we live a life dedicated to it. Help us see this today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have here Paul having come off a week-long period where he was purifying himself. So essentially what he has done is he has made a vow, and as he goes down the temple, as he was so prone to do, he is going in. And what happens here is that there are these Jews from Asia, not Jerusalem, Jews from Asia, who are actually here to stir up trouble against Paul. Now, why is it significant that the Jews here are from Asia? Because if you remember, we've read this, Paul had been laboring with the churches that were in Asia, namely the main church, the church at Ephesus. And if you remember, not only had he challenged everything that they were doing, but he had specifically challenged the idol worship that was happening in Asia. He had challenged also the false piety of the Jews who were in Asia as well. So if you think about it, these people have a personal vendetta against Paul because he had been there and he had undermined their authority because they were trying to impact all the other religious people around them by saying, you have to be circumcised, you have to do this, you have to do that as their means to hold them under their control. And so not only does he challenge the idol worship that's happening in Ephesus and throughout Asia, but he actually even challenges the Jews who are here trying to maintain control over the people. So they're angry at Paul, and for all that time that he had done that, they're desiring to get back at him. This is significant. Because they were using the law as their means of leveraging control over the people. And they knew that the gospel actually challenged their power. 
If you remember in the hidden agenda sermon, you remember while Paul goes down to Asia and he challenges those false gods, there's Demetrius, that silversmith who pretended to love worshiping Artemis, who is actually just using that as a cover up to stir up trouble against Paul because Paul had interrupted his ability to fashion idols and make money doing so. And he caused his uproar against Paul on account of the gospel. In this situation, what makes it even more wicked is that the Jews here who are heralding heralding themselves as the religious elites are actually behaving no differently than the worldly elites that we see in our world. How is that? Look at what I said at the beginning. You have a city in Jerusalem, which they all know the context, that is already on the brink because of the social and racial tensions that have been happening there. And they completely play on it. This is what wickedness of our world and in our world looks like. They come pretending to defend the cause, yet they're actually using it as a means to incite people over that very same cause. And unfortunately, as the people here, we often fall ploy to it as well. Think about it here. Knowing that there were major racial divides in the city, they accused Paul falsely, by the way, of bringing in Gentiles too far into the temple. See, while Gentiles who were God, God fearers could enter the temple, there were certain areas of the temple that were restricted from them. But if you were not a God fearer and you were a Gentile, you didn't step foot into the temple. They were restricted from going in at all. And so what did they do? They accuse Paul, knowing the overarching racial tensions in this city, they accuse Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple in order to play against the racial tensions that already existed. This would be in our day what is to deliberately counsel someone whose life goes against your agenda. What do you do? You accuse them of the very thing that's affecting that region. They accuse Paul of violating the laws regarding race. So what happens here? They get exactly what they want. They stir up trouble, which leads to even more unrest that had been happening in that city. So what are they doing? Their scheme here is that they are totally manipulating these people and leading them, instigating them to hate. So what do they charge Paul with? They say Paul is teaching against the law and they say that he has defiled the temple by bringing in people who are Gentiles. Now, these, if you know, just from the area, but also having been a Jew, these are inflammatory accusations. But here's the thing. This is the thing about the accusations. They're not true. They're not true. Quite often, the chief attack that the world has against Christians is that they attack our personal integrity. That's what the world wants to do. They want to undermine the integrity of the Christians. They attack our lives. They create situations where one can question the authenticity of our call, and they spread those lies like wildfire, hoping to snuff out the effectiveness of the gospel. That's what they do. 
If you've been a Christian for any period of time and lived among people in the world and haven't stood on the truth of the gospel, what you'll find is that they're always digging and looking and trying to find things to accuse you of. That's the reality. This is what we learn, though, in the Beatitudes from Jesus in Matthew 5 and 11. He says, but blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Here's the key word, though. Falsely. On my account. It's right here. This is the world's M.O. This is what they do. But Jesus says that we are actually blessed when this happens to us. Why are we blessed when people are persecuting and falsely accusing us? Well, one reason is that we are now counterparts in the suffering of Jesus. That is a blessed position to be in. If people are reviling you and making up things about you, you are now a counterpart in the suffering of Jesus Christ. But it must be for righteousness sake, right? It must be for the gospel's sake, right? People can't just make up stuff about you and you say, I'm suffering for the gospel. What makes it blessed is because we are taking a stand for the gospel. It is leading to people to want to invalidate us. That's the same thing they did with Jesus, which is the main reason I tell people all the time when they say, if I could see, I would believe. But you had all these people who saw and yet they said, but he does this under the power of Beelzebub. He does this under the power of Satan. He's not truly sent from God. They said all types of things about Jesus. So the one thing is that it makes us counterparts in the suffering. But this is the other thing. It's an important thing. But it also means that what they are saying about us is actually false. That's the key. As Christians, we are not in a good place if the world is making accusations against us that are true. Our service to God is only as honorable as the lives that we live unstained from sin. This is one of the things that we have seen in our own culture, not just with Christians, but with anyone who goes against the agenda and the narrative of this world. You know what they do to them? They cancel them. They cancel them. It's the cancel culture. They either cancel someone for present offenses or past offenses, but mostly they do it as a means to stifle any detractors. And look, I'm not here to harrow, you know, Dave Chappelle is like our hero. Dave Chappelle is not a Christian. I'm aware of that. But all he said was that if you were born a man, that you're a man. And if you're born a woman, you're a woman. And trans people that work for Netflix walked out of the building. Like what is happening here when a man makes a statement of fact and yet people want to cancel him? What happens? You went against our narrative. You went against our agenda. And in a world that promises so much freedom and acceptance of truth, the minute you bring it, they want to nix you. So what happens? And so for many of us, the attack against us, as we've seen with the cancer culture, is that the mistake or they think you made a mistake or they uncover some old offense. They want to use it as a means to counsel you. 
Now, I will admit, one of the big issues with many of the Christian men and people that we've seen fallen is not just that the cancel culture came off after them, but is that there was something that could be uncovered in the first place. That was the issue. I'm talking great men of God, even some of those that we claimed as the, the stronger ones have fallen, and what we realize is that they did a pretty good job of hiding what they were doing. But then the other side is, if I'm being honest, I guess if they dug up enough information on all of our lives, we would all be canceled. I know I would. But this is the hope. The hope, however, is that as believers, that we are living our lives without the secret hidden sins that are often seen in our world. How do we combat the culture like Paul in the midst of accusations from the world? Well, we use and follow Paul's instruction. What's the instruction he gave to the elders? He said, you must be above reproach. You must be above reproach, which means you are not putting yourself in situations that if somebody shows up, it even looks sinful. You're not putting yourself in situations in a modern day sense where you got text messages and a Google history and pictures that you have to delete. That if somebody actually got a hold of that information, everything that you've been preaching and saying becomes compromised. How do we combat the accusation of the world? We must be above reproach. And I'm going to tell you, being above reproach does not happen in public. It happens in private. Now, you being above reproach in private comes out in public. But if you're not above reproach in private then what you're doing in private will come out in the public. When Joseph was in the house of Potiphar, he, he was accused of having tried to lay with Potiphar's house. In other words, he was accused of rape. He was accused of rape. And the truth is that what actually happened is that she was projecting her own wickedness onto Joseph because she couldn't get him. And her desires were to be with him. Now, in terms of what happened to Joseph, Joseph's integrity merits him nothing, does it? Why do I say it merits him nothing? He still went to jail. He gets thrown in prison. And Potiphar was a man who was well off. He could have been killed and would have been killed eventually. And so there's an inflammatory accusation. He has a life of personal integrity, yet because of this accusation, he's thrown in prison. So to the world, what was their judgment against Joseph? In the eyes of the world, regardless of what they knew, Joseph was guilty. Joseph was guilty. This brings its own sense of pain and suffering and embarrassment. But in the eyes of God, while the world had declared Joseph to be guilty, God knew that Joseph was blameless. That means that our best defense against the culture, like we see with Joseph, with Paul, and ultimately perfectly in Jesus, is living a life of personal integrity before God. They resisted the culture knowing that it would not be their deeds that vindicated them before the world. And this is what David the psalmist wrote. In Psalm 26, he writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, 
For I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all of your wondrous deeds. He says, vindicate me, O Lord, meaning that he wants to be justified. He wants God to open up and invade his life and see, I have been faithful to you, God. But I want you to see why he's even petitioning God. He says, God, because I have walked in integrity. I have trusted you without wavering. See, it isn't just that we are Christians and being attacked by the culture, but it is that we have maintained our personal holiness. We've maintained our personal holiness. You put to silence the accusations of the world and of the enemy by permitting them when they excavate our lives of finding nothing. How do you silence the enemy? You don't give him the evidence he needs to convict you of whatever crime he wants to convict you of. Why is Paul in our text such a willing sacrifice? It's not because he's guilty, y'all. It's because he's innocent. I think we have all been in positions where we have had things said to us or even about us that not only were they not just a reflection of who we are, but they have even been an outright lie. Our natural tendency is to attack back and to defend. But as believers, that's just not how we fight. We have been instructed by Paul to live that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. That's been one of the things that's been breaking my heart. If you've and I don't bring up the news often, but if you've seen the things happening with the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and how many Christians have stood there and defended him. And I'm looking at the scripture and it says, but we lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. In a way that is actually pleasing to our Savior. David in writing in the psalm says that you can prove me, Lord. You can try me and you will see that I walk in your faithfulness. And this is an eye. This is an eye on our part, on his part, rather, to Jesus. Not only was Jesus mocked, not only was Jesus abused, not only was he ridiculed and lied on. If Jesus had gotten off the cross when they said, if you are truly the son of God, get off the cross. Then it wouldn't have justified him at all. But you know who else it wouldn't have justified? It wouldn't have justified me. It wouldn't have justified you either. What justifies Jesus? It's the same thing that justifies us. Same thing that declares us righteous. That when they went to the tomb, there's nobody there. Ultimately, our vindication 
and our justification comes from the Savior who was who is risen. It will always be our natural temptation to defend ourselves and our names in every turn when the culture is invading our innocence. But we must trust that if we are living our lives accordingly, then there is no reason to defend ourselves in the matter. That is why the Bible says, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I have memorized that scripture over and over again because y'all know I got a slick tongue. Y'all know I be wanting to defend myself. But the one thing I realize is the more you live faithfully to God, the more the accusations will come. And I must trust that if Jesus can stand there and take the blows on the cross, die the death of a criminal, knowing that he will be raised up as the means of his justification and mine, then I can be quiet. That means if I trust that God is God and will be God, then it doesn't matter what the culture does or says around us. I know that he is my justifier. I know that he is my vindicator. How? Because the righteousness that I have as a believer is not my righteousness, it's his. It has been gifted to me. Therefore, even if the world does uncover sins of my past or your past and wants to counsel us. I can say that's who I used to be. My hope is that you can say that's who you used to be. I don't have to fight this battle. God will defend me. But again, God is only defending me. If my life is found faithful to him. That's it. This is the beautiful thing about all of this, though. God is absolutely using the affliction of Paul here to grow the body of Christ. How is he doing that? Because during Paul's imprisonment, God is going to bring him before some of the most powerful men in history. We're going to see this over the next few weeks. He's going to be before Herod. He's going to be before Felix. He's going to be before Caesar. And every single time, not only is he going to tell his autobiography, he's also going to share with them the gospel. Every single time he stands before them, he's going to share the gospel. God was using the suffering that the world was inflicting on him to grow the body of Christ. That's one reason. But the other thing that happens is that during Paul's imprisonment, he's going to ultimately write for us the 13 epistles that largely make up the New Testament. The reality is, is that if I am living my life accordingly, according to the word of God, that even when things either in the culture or in my own family go awry, I can trust that God is working all things together for my good and for his glory. That's what I can trust. But if people start uncovering stuff that I'm actively participating in, I don't know that I can trust that God is working that together for your good. The only way God will work that together for your good is if it leads to repentance. 
And if it doesn't, it will only lead to embarrassment. So while the lies and abuse and offense from the world may seem significant, it may hurt, it may bother you, it may frustrate and anger you, ultimately what we learn is that God will use that for his glory. So when we are facing our issues with the culture and we seek to be vindicated, we should also remember that God will use our afflictions to accomplish something in us. Therefore, we rejoice and are blessed when the world is against us. Why? Because this is our hope. That he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And like Tina read before we began, and they and all these things, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because the greatest conqueror in the world who conquered sin, hell, death, and the grave now resides in me in the person of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to fight because he's already justified me. He's already vindicated me. So when the world shoots their arrows, just let them shoot. And trust that if I am who I say I am in Christ, I will be justified. I have been justified and I will be vindicated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you um, even in the midst of affliction, God, that you have afflicted us. You have allowed persecution to happen around us to strengthen us, but to also grow the body of Christ, to sanctify us but also mature the body of Christ, God. Lord, it doesn't feel great when it happens. In fact, it is painful, and we may even want to ask, why me? Why me? Why not you? See, the right question is not, why me? The right question, God, is why Jesus? Why would Jesus, on my behalf, Absorb the abuse, absorb the lies, the accusations, so that I could have eternal life. And knowing that Jesus has ultimately endured and suffered in my place, God, these little feathery light afflictions mean nothing. Because I know if I have lived my life through the power of the Holy Spirit, in an upright manner that I have been justified, I have been declared righteous. And the only thing that I can do is continue to work out my salvation with fear and with trembling, knowing that it is you who wills and works your good purpose in us. Praying that, God, that anything that the world would accuse me of would just not be true. And knowing, God, even if the world, as it so deceitfully does, uncovers sins of our past that even if we don't get justification and forgiveness from the world we've already got justification and forgiveness from you God the culture will do anything to attack us and to dismantle the Christian faith and we must stand against the culture God help us know that we don't have to fight this battle. We don't have to say anything in this matter. You will fight for us. God, if there's anybody here who's listening or who's watching and who says, 
There is stuff in my life that can be uncovered right now. And those sins have not been forgiven by others or by God. Then I petition you, if you have heard this, knowing that God has sent his son to be in your place so that you don't have to suffer for all of eternity for the sins that you have committed. That you repent and believe the gospel. You turn away from that life of sin. You turn to him. You look to him and be saved. Just look. Just look to Jesus and be saved. He's already done the work. Just look to him and be saved. Lord, we pray that you will keep us in the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.